All right. Good morning. My name's Tyler. Thank you. I appreciate that. Got some feedback. That's really good. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and it is it is really good to be here. It's it feels like it's been a while since I've been here in this context. We were on vacation and then sick, and then we were over at First Baptist, and then last week uh, I was preaching at the Chinese church in town, um, which was really good. But it's it's really good to be back in this context, in this place with all of y'all, and um, to get to share the word of the Lord with y'all today. Um, a lot of y'all know this. In, in 2015, uh, my family and I were preparing to go overseas as missionaries, um, and, and during that time, Um, our pastor at the time invited me to do um, kind of an an intensive pastoral training for about eight months. We uh, would meet um, throughout uh, each month. We'd meet a couple of times. We read something like 14 books in eight months. It was was really intense. It was a lot of things that we went through, Um, but it was one of the the richest, most um, encouraging things that I've done, most impactful things that I've done in my life. Um, just before we left um, to go onto the field, he sat down with me and, and we had a conversation. And he asked me a question. Um, he asked me why I wanted to go live among a people um, with, with whom I had, had never had any real interactions. I, I didn't have any personal connection. I, I didn't know them. What was my motivation for going? And that was a really good question. Why? Why was I going? Um, as I, was, as I was thinking through that question, um, something clicked for me. Um, I, I could have given you all of the reasons and rationale as to why we chose this specific people group, as to why we were um, well prepared, as God had equipped us, God had given us life experiences, and, and all of these things. Um, I, I could have done all that, but something was missing. Here's what it is. How do you love something as abstract as a people group with whom you'd had no real interaction? How, how do you love something that's that abstract? And, and I came to the realization that you, you, you really can't love an abstraction. Like that's, that's just not possible. So then why was I compelled to go? What was my reason? What is the, the, the motivation of, of any missionary that goes? There could be a couple of reasons. And one of those is very much compelled by our sin nature. The other is the opposite of that. And as I go through our text today, I think we're going to see those two motivations come out. We're going to see that, that those motivations, they matter immensely. In fact, as, as disciples of Jesus, I would argue that the difference between obedience and disobedience lies in these motivations at, at the most fundamental level. Uh, now, I realize that I haven't given you my answer to that question yet, uh, and I'm not going to until the end of the sermon. I want y'all to have to pay attention and listen to me. So let's take a look at today's text, starting in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Okay, I'm going to stop here. Here's what's happening. So last week, Brian preached on the transfiguration, right? Jesus had just taken Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain um, to pray. And while they were there, Jesus' clothes turned dazzling white, and Moses and Elijah joined him. Okay, so this was, this was spectacular, once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-history type, type moment. Now, 
Peter, he, he didn't really know what he was saying, but he was like, hey, Jesus, let's set up some tents and just stay up here. God, at that point, audibly spoke from heaven and said, no, 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 listen to what Jesus has to say. You listen to him. So they had a bit of a, a, what we would call a mountaintop experience. And now they're coming back down and we can see what happens. So a great crowd met him and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he's my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So after this incredible revelation of the glory of Jesus on the mountain, Jesus, Peter, James, and John come back down to find this crowd gathered, and, and a man cries out to Jesus saying that his disciples were unable to cast a demon out of his son. One thing we need to remember at this point, if we go back to chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus had given his disciples authority to cast out all the demons. But something is happening here. They were not able to cast out this demon. So what's going on? There are a couple possibilities. Either this was some super demon that, um, that they're not able to cast out, that, that Jesus even didn't have power over, or something had caused the disciples to lose, even if just temporarily, to lose the power over demons. I guess it could have been something else altogether, but those are, those are the two most practical um, possibilities. But we got to remember in 9-1, Jesus said that his disciples would have power over all the demons. So unless Jesus is lying or Jesus didn't have that authority, then something else is going on here. Why were his disciples unable to cast out this demon? All right, let's think about this for a second. These guys had likely done this before. When Jesus sent them out, he gave them this authority. So when they went out to the towns and villages, they likely cast out some demons. They likely had experience and they had the authority to do so. But now they're in front of this crowd and they were unable to cast out this demon. Some commentators that you read would suggest that they, they had doubt because they doubted they were unable to cast out the demon. That, that may be so, but I believe the rest of the passage points us in a different direction. I believe that the rest of the passage today is going to point out that they had kind of a misplaced confidence as they approached the boy, and we're going to get to that in a second. Now, the, the narrative I'm about to give isn't specifically in the text, but this is, this is kind of what I imagine kind of happened. This is, this is how I imagine it going down. So, so follow with me for a second. I, I don't think we're going to be too far off. So I imagine this man heard that Jesus was coming to town. Hey, Jesus had just been up on a mountain and had fed 5,000 people, probably closer to 15,000, maybe even more with, men, with women and children. So maybe the man was up on the mountain when this happened. Maybe he saw Jesus do this miracle where he broke bread and broke fish and gave it to 5,000 men. We, we know that this was, this was nine days after that event. So he could have been up there. Maybe he was just in town and word had kind of gotten around town that, whoa, this, this rabbi did something really amazing. He took this bread and fish, these, these 
this little meal and he fed it to 5,000 people. He, he may have just heard about it. Regardless of what happened, this man brought his son and, and came to find Jesus. Now, Jesus was up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, but his other disciples were down at the bottom. So I imagine his conversation went something like this. He, he probably came up and asked where Jesus was. He saw his disciples. Okay, you guys are with Jesus. You guys are following Jesus. So, so where's Jesus? And they probably responded, he's up on the mountain. Why, why do you need him? What's going on? And he answered saying, okay, my, my son has a demon. It throws him down. It, it's, it's breaking him. Can you do something, please? I, I, I just, I want Jesus to set him free from this oppression. Now at this point, I imagine the disciples kind of looked at each other and thought, this is our chance. Check this out, guys. There's, there's a bit of a crowd forming. The reporter from the local news scroll is over there. Let's show these guys what we can do. This is, this is it. This is going to be awesome. Everybody's going to look at us and know how great and powerful we are. Now, that's not what happened. It, but to be fair, the disciples didn't get it quite as bad as the seven sons of Sceva. You remember them? This was in, in Acts 19. Seven sons of Sceva, they, they thought that they were going to grab hold of this power too, and they were going to cast out demons. So they went up to this demon-possessed man and, and tried to cast the demon out. And the, the demon basically laughed at them, beat them, stripped them, and sent them running away with their tails between their legs. The, the disciples at this point didn't quite get that treatment, but it, it appears that their posture wasn't much different. So, so here we have the disciples standing in front of this man and his son with a demon, and they were unable to do anything. I'm sure at this point, with this crowd that had gathered, they were, they were pretty embarrassed. Like, they were supposed to have this authority to cast out the demon. Why couldn't they? What was going on? But it's about to get worse. They turn around, and there's Jesus. Oh, so, yeah, Jesus had given us this authority, but we were unable to do this. What? Oh, no. And Jesus asked, what's going on? So, so now Peter was with Jesus, and he wasn't available to comment on their behalf. He, he didn't know. He was usually their spokesperson. He would pop off with an answer. But he was up on the mountain with Jesus. So this man that had brought his son tells Jesus exactly what happened. He said, my, my son is having these seizures. He's being attacked by this demon. And your big shot disciples over here weren't able to heal him. They weren't, they weren't able to cast out the demon like they said they would. Jesus, in his rebuke, doesn't mince words. Let's look what he says. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. And he gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Okay. So what was Jesus rebuking here? First, we can see clearly that he's rebuking their lack of faith. If you look at Mark's account of this story in, in Mark's gospel, he, he tells them that, that these kind of demons can only come out through fasting and prayer. So there's an issue here. Regardless of how confident the disciples may have been in their own strength and ability, Confidence 
is not the same as faith. I think sometimes we can get those confused. Confidence is not the same as faith. Faith connotates dependency. The evidence of that dependency is prayer and fasting. So they may have been really confident that they could do this. They may have had experience and said, yeah, we can do this. We've done it before. But they weren't dependent on God for the power that had been given to them. That's what's lacking here. It isn't just that they weren't confident enough in the authority they'd been given. It's that they weren't dependent on God. The words that Jesus uses here point back to a, a prayer of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Let's listen to Moses' words. This is Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. It says, They have dealt corruptly with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So Moses is saying that the Israelites had wandered so far from the God who brought them out of slavery in Egypt that they no longer resembled him as his children. They had seen his power to save and yet grumbled and complained and even longed to return to slavery in Egypt. When God brought them to the edge of the promised land, they wavered and refused to go in out of fear of their lack of strength and ability to conquer the people in the land. They were faithless and twisted. They turned their eyes away from the promise of God and looked at their own ability. Jesus is drawing upon that as he's speaking here in this passage. The disciples, like the Israelites, turned their eyes away from God and looked at their own ability. Now, while the Israelites declined to act, the disciples tried to act and failed. But it appears that the motivation here is very similar. They're looking at their own ability. Can we do this? Do I have this ability? Not, is my God big enough to do this? See, Jesus is speaking to, to more than just his disciples when he says this, but he's definitely speaking to the disciples. They had grabbed onto the power they'd been given and twisted it into a means of pointing not to the power of God to break every stronghold, but they sought to operate independence of full reliance on Jesus, and God did not honor that. But now Jesus was there. The demon tried one more time to attack this boy, to throw him down, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, and the demon left. And look at what happened. Everyone was astonished at the majesty of God. I love the word majesty there. The, the original word that was used, the, the root of it is megas. So they were amazed at how mega God is. At how grand and powerful God is. Instead of credit going to the disciples for their amazing ability to do this miracle, now all glory went to God alone. They were stunned at how easy something that had been completely impossible for man to do was when God stepped in. But pay attention here. Because this next section, Jesus is going to do something that's both unexpected and, and a bit confusing. Let's look again. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. 
But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. All right. So Jesus had just cast out this impossible demon. And the crowd was astonished at the majesty of God. But Jesus came for more than that. The ultimate majesty of God was not revealed in Jesus' power to cast out this one demon. The ultimate power of God was going to be revealed when Jesus, the Messiah, of whom all the prophecies of the Old Testament were written, would be delivered into the hands of men. Now, what does that mean? That's, that's the question that the disciples were having to wrestle with right now. They didn't understand what he was saying. They had they'd just been rebuked for not having enough faith, so they were a little timid, didn't really want to step out there and, and ask, what are you talking about, Jesus? But they didn't, they didn't understand. They were confused. But we need to see what Jesus is doing here. While everyone is standing in awe at the power of Jesus to exercise this demon, Jesus was pointing his disciples to the cross. In January of 2020, house church leaders from across China gathered in Malaysia for a conference. This was right before COVID hit, kind of right around the time where they were starting to discover this mysterious pneumonia. Some of y'all might remember this. One of the main topics of that conference was a theology of suffering. One thing that the Chinese church gets spot on is that Christianity centers around suffering. It might sound shocking. But in fact, one of the Chinese pastors at the conference, he put it like this. He said, the mark of the church is the cross. See, we, don't, we don't talk about Christianity like that here. But I, I, I want to explain what, what I mean by this when I say Christianity centers around suffering. Here's what I don't mean. When you look at, let's say, Buddhism, when you look at Buddhism, there's an idea that all of life is suffering. That's, that's just what life is. Life is, is just this big, uh, it's just all about suffering. And the reason for that suffering in, in Buddhism is that we have desire. Okay? So when you desire something and you either don't get it or you lose it, you suffer. So, so the goal of life is to rid yourself, to disconnect yourself from all desire. Ultimately, that means that you have to disconnect yourself from love as well. Because when you love someone, then, then you open yourself up to suffering. Christianity goes a, a bit different direction with this. And, and that's what Jesus is laying out for the disciples here. At the center of Christianity is a bloody cross. All of biblical history was pointing forward to this moment of suffering. Jesus' life and ministry was always headed for this moment of suffering. And now on this side of the resurrection, we look back to this moment of suffering. The identity of the church is rooted in this moment of suffering. And we're told to take up our own cross daily and follow him. This is, this is one thing that the Buddhists do get right. Love does cause suffering. The cross is the most stunning example of this. 
But see, like the, like the Buddhists, Jesus' disciples just couldn't fathom how this could possibly be a good thing. Because the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. Jesus' kingdom doesn't operate the same way as the kingdoms of this world. The next verses are going to make it painfully clear that the disciples just aren't getting it. Look at what it says. Starting in verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is the greatest. So Jesus had just told them he's going to be delivered over into the hands of men. And the next thing we see is the disciples arguing over who's the greatest. Makes sense. As we're reading this, it, it seems a bit odd. And it makes it seem like the disciples are, are at least a little bit narcissistic, right? But we have to follow what's going on. Going back to the beginning of chapter 9, remember, Jesus sent his disciples out as ambassadors. And he gave them supernatural power over sickness and demons. And remember, Peter had rightly confessed that the disciples saw Jesus as the Messiah. So if you were sent out as an ambassador of the person you viewed to be the anointed one of God, and he gave you power over both the natural world, sickness, and the supernatural world, demons, especially if you had the view that they did at the time, that he was going to set up his kingdom and reign supreme right now on earth, you begin to see yourself as being really close to power. So it all really fits in the context of this passage. It fits that the disciples would have tried to take this newly found power and, and try to attempt to cast out this demon. And it fits that they'd have no idea what Jesus was talking about when he said he was going to be handed over to men. None of that fit the narrative. For them, it was about power. It was about culture. They wanted their desired way of life to be the status quo. Jesus' comments here didn't fit that paradigm for them. Instead, for them, it, it fit that they should be discussing who is going to be the closest to power. Matthew 20 has a similar story. Let's take a look. It's Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. It says this, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, to Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to, sit at my, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but, is for those, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. See, in their context, their whole experience, their whole life, 
They, they had experienced that, that those in power lorded it over those they ruled. You grabbed for power so that you would be the one to call the shots. Otherwise, you were at the mercy who, of whoever was most successful in their power grab. Uh, let's be honest. That's our context as well, right? Whoever gets power calls the shots. They write the stories. They control the narrative. And they hold on to that power at all costs because if they lose it, they know that the next person to grab power is going to do the exact same thing to them. So this is the idea that the disciples were operating under. It's just how things work. They aligned with Jesus because they correctly identified him as the Messiah, but their assumption was that he would grab the reins of power and they would be on the right side of that. So to go back to casting out a demon, a demonstration of this supernatural ability and authority and power would surely give them the respect of the people, right? It would surely draw people to them. It would surely give them an upper hand in society. The problem was Jesus' plans didn't fit that narrative. So it didn't make sense to them when he told them about these plans. So here they are arguing about who is the greatest. And here's Jesus' response. Let's look at it again. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. At that time in Roman society, children didn't have any status at all. Those in power had other people who would take care of their kids. And in fact, there was a, a role in society known as a, a pedagogue. A pedagogue in ancient Rome was generally an educated bondservant who worked for a family and was responsible for the general education of the children. They would escort them to school and back, assist them with completing their assignments, and they were even responsible for imparting a sense of morality to the children. These were the people, the bond servants were the people who spent their time with children. I want to read a bit of an article from, uh, from PBS that talks about uh, children in ancient Rome. It says, the father of the family, who, who was the oldest living male of, of the extended family, the father of the family had absolute rule over his household and children. If they angered him, he had the legal right to disown his children, sell them into slavery, or worse. The paterfamilias, this is the, the head of the family, had the right to decide whether to keep newborn babies. After birth, the midwife placed babies on the ground, and only if the paterfamilias picked it up was the baby formally accepted into the family. That's the role of children in Roman society. When I say they had no status, I mean they had no status. The article actually gets more explicit, um, but I, I, think, I think we get the point. Jesus essentially told his disciples to set aside their aspirations of power and commit themselves to welcoming those who had the lowest status in society, the children. And he said that by receiving the children, they were receiving both him and God. If they truly wanted to be great, they wouldn't grab for power. They would be like a bondservant. 
To be great meant to move toward the margins and lovingly lay down themselves and become a servant. You want to do great things for Christ? Don't go grab for power. Don't devote yourself to being a culture war hero. Move toward the powerless. Love the vulnerable. See, this, this is why we actively address racial injustice. This is why we've handled the pand pandemic in the way that we have. This is why we revamped our benevolence ministry. This is why we've taken an active role in helping to welcome and resettle refugees. All of this is rooted in this gospel perspective. If our theology isn't driving our actions, then what are we doing? Yes, it's inconvenient. The cross was inconvenient for Jesus. But if our theology isn't impacting our lives, then do we really believe it? You know the old adage, God helps those who help themselves? Y'all heard that? That's 100% contrary to this gospel. Actually, God calls us to help those who can't help themselves, just as Jesus did for us. Please hear that. God helped us when we couldn't help ourselves. It's the whole reason Jesus came. And he calls us to that same heart for the weak and marginalized and vulnerable. He doesn't call us to power and prestige, but to humility and service. Let's look at this last section. Jesus answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Jesus is consistent. He didn't need to control the narrative. He didn't need to lord his power over anyone. He didn't need to dictate who could and couldn't serve his kingdom. None of this was about power and control for Jesus. This, this kind of situation that just happened is something that happens a lot. Another name for it is territorialism. You see, in John's mind, this man was encroaching on John's territory. He was doing something that John and the other 11 were supposed to be doing. He was grabbing for John's power. The, the modern term that the churches use is sheep stealing. Y'all heard that? Maybe the modern equivalent of this, this um, complaint would be, Master, we saw somebody advertising a VBS at the same time as ours. And then we all do this. We all want things our own way. We all want to build our own brand. But that, that brings us back to what I mentioned at the beginning. Some of y'all thought I forgot. I know Kevin did. He was wondering if I was going to be coming back to this. I know that because he's called me on it before. Now, as a reminder, my, my pastor was asking me why, why I wanted to take my family and, and go work among this this people group that I didn't know. Why was I compelled? What was my motivation? There are two possibilities, at least two. First possibility, I wanted to build a name for myself. I wanted to feel good about what I could accomplish. I wanted to build up my spiritual resume 
I think if you talk to any missionary who's, who's really honest, like there, there's always, always, always this temptation. It, it's the temptation of Babel, the temptation to make a name for ourselves. It's the temptation of empire, to colonize and to place our label on things. The second possibility is this. I love Jesus. Jesus deserves all glory and honor and praise. And there are people on this earth with no access to that understanding. No one has told them who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And there's no one around them who knows either. At least no one that can communicate to them in their own language and with an understanding of their own cultural and social context. And so they don't know that they were created to honor and glorify Jesus. They don't know that Jesus deeply loves them and wants to welcome them in. They, don't know, they, they do know that life involves suffering, but they don't know that while all of history points to a bloody cross, the backside of that story is that Jesus rose again victorious and defeated Satan's sin and death and will one day put an end to all that suffering. They don't know the joy of that salvation. And since they don't know that, Jesus is not highly exalted among them. The glory due his name is being given to another. See, here's the thing. And it's the thing that the disciples would eventually realize. If we devote ourselves to that second motivation, we'll see that that first motivation runs directly contrary to it. If we long to see Jesus exalted and honored, then our name and our prestige and our accomplishments fall by the wayside. Listen to these words of Paul from Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the, of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you hear the words of our brothers and sisters in China as Paul is talking here? The mark of the church is the cross. I forsake all that Jesus is high and exalted, that he is praised and loved and known. I don't want the credit because it's due his name. Don't look at me, look at the cross. May we be so willing to die to ourselves and this world that it would be said of us that our mark is the cross. May we follow so closely in the way of Jesus that we become like him in his death, that we may with him attain the resurrection from the dead. I pray that we won't hear faithless and twisted generation, but instead we'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray.
Father, so often we get so fixated on ourselves. Father, let me, let me take a step back. So often I get so fixated on myself. I want things my way. I want people to know that I did them. I want to take the glory that is due your name. Father, break me of that. Father, let us live for the glory and honor of Jesus alone. Let us lay down our pride and our ambition. Let us desire that people look not at us, but look at the cross. Let us move towards the margins. Let us move toward the vulnerable, away from the lights and the cameras and the newspapers, Father, just to, to serve, to lay down our lives, following in the example of Jesus. Father, that our lives will point to him and not to ourselves. Father, let the mark of our lives, let the mark of our church be the cross. And when people see us, they see Jesus and give him the honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.